Welcome to Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson. On today's show, I've compiled some excerpts from the listening project at the Petersburg Public Library from over the years. So we'll be hearing from many community members about their stories. We invite you to ask somebody to tell their story. And um, you can have it archived at the Petersburg Public Library's listening. If you're interested in participating, um, please contact Kari Peterson at the Public Library, 772-3349. And if you like what you hear here um, and want to hear more of the story, you can also find those at the Petersburg Public Library's website, www. Dot psglib.org, and it's the listening project under local history. So Friday, November 27th, is not just Black Friday. It is the National Day of Listening. So if you're inclined, please offer somebody the gift of listening, and you can record it to be archived at the Petersburg Public Library. We're going to start off with the very first interview that was ever done for the listening project, and I had the pleasure of doing it with my grandma, Angie Hofstead. Everyone in this community has a story. The Petersburg Listening Project seeks to honor our common ground and our diversity by creating an archive of oral histories. We encourage people to inquire and listen to each other's life experiences by setting aside time for an interview, which will be recorded and saved for posterity at the public library. This is the first interview in the Listening Project series. Angie Hofstad speaks with her granddaughter, Kari Peterson, about her childhood on the family fox farm on Camp Island near Lakati Bay. Well, now you have to tell about Pooh Bear. Oh, Pooh Bear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've always been jealous because I wasn't there when Pooh Bear was there. I was down south going to school in my junior year, and uh, this bear came... uh, cub came on the island. I imagine it had a mother with it, but she must have went back across because I never heard anything about her and left the cub behind. And uh, they came out one morning to get the fish to start grinding. And this bear cub come up when they had the lid off of the fish box. And the bear cub come up and climbed in the fish box because he was hungry. (laughs) And And so they were kind of startled, but he didn't disturb any of them. He just wanted some fish. And uh, so Dad let him have a piece of fish, and he hung around, and he realized that they could feed him. And so he was always there. But (laughs) Dad had to get the fish out so they could grind it for the foxes, and they'd give him some, and he could have some cereal too. But he he played with the kids, and, and he was just real gentle bear, and he played with the kids uh, most of that summer season. By the time I came back, they had decided that he was getting too big and a little bit too rough. They, he used to come, when the kids were doing their schoolwork on the dining room table by the windows, and they hadn't come out yet to play, then he would come and scratch on the window to see when they were coming out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he wanted... Wanted to play. They better come out and play. But he was getting kind of rough. And, and uh, so Dad talked to the fish and game man, to Hosey Sarber. And 
by the time I got home, they had him in a pen in town. Now, was he black bear? Yeah, he was a black bear. bear. There was a story about him after that because that was summertime. And uh, a movie crew came into town. And what they were trying to do was take a story picture of a polar bear. But they couldn't get any polar bears that they could have for a story. And what they did, they talked to Hosey, and they got this bear. He was so friendly. As long as they fed him, they had him. And what they did was whitewash him so that he was a polar bear. <laughs> and then they made, they, you know, were filming their, their story, but then they made a mistake, and it was, late, it was getting late in the fall, and they took him up on the top of the mountain where there was snow and ice, and they got started with their little story, and then one morning he wasn't there, and they could not find him. And they had an ad out for one whitewashed bear they needed. <laughs> and, and Hosey was laughing so hard, he was practically rolling in the aisles because he said, those dumb people, black bears go to bed when they get <laughs> in the snow. <laughs> and he'd gone and hibernated somewhere. <laughs> and they weren't going to get him back. <laughs> In this excerpt, Tom Abbott speaks with his son, Van, about growing up in the family's funeral home business in Minnesota. And my last question is, what was it like growing up in a funeral home? Well, that's, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I find more and more people are kind of fascinated by that when they hear, I'm the youngest of seven, so of my six siblings, the two oldest are both funeral directors, and my dad is a funeral director. So there are three of them in the family. It was interesting, but it was, you know, for us, it was just, it's what we knew. It was, it's what, what we grew up with. You know, it was sort of the family business. I mean, we didn't think it, we didn't think it was weird. Uh, we didn't think it was anything different. I mean, it was what we did. You know, the house itself was not connected to the funeral home, and we didn't live in the funeral home. We had the house, the residence was a couple of blocks away. I did work for my dad at the funeral home. A lot of us did in the family. Uh, at various times. I put makeup on uh, the deceased uh, a lot. I did a lot of that, you know, where you had to put some color back into them for a wake. You know, we were Catholic, so a lot of our funerals that we did were Catholic, but it was a small town, so there were, you know, Lutherans and other denominations there in southeast Minnesota, but uh, for the most part, we did Catholic funerals. That was my helping out job, was to do that, and then as I got older, my brothers and I, we were the ones that were, you know, kind of moving people around, caskets around and that sort of thing. So there was all that part of the the business, too. The house phone and the business phone had two different rings, and it was the same phone. And that's kind of weird. This was all before cell phones or anything, you know. We didn't even have, I don't, we didn't have an answering machine. We had um, somebody on call. And, you know, who's watching the phone tonight was the big argument in our family all the time. Because somebody always had to be available to answer that phone. And we knew, you know, you knew one from the other. And it was like always when we sat down for a family dinner that the business phone would ring. You know, so there was that aspect of it. And it was it was interesting. I mean, I, I think we all learned a pretty valuable lesson with it. I think we all in our family have a sense of death as not necessarily being this terrible, fearful event, 
but that it's more a part of life. Although, of course, you know, we all, uh, our mother died. My father has been a widower for 35 years. Uh, she died in 1973. She was only 45 years old, so I'm now older than she was at that time. So I think we learned a lot growing up as a funeral director's family and then have, losing our mother at an early age for all of us. I think it really gave us a valuable lesson about how to live your life with, you know, taking every day for as a gift. So that's what I hope that you can learn, too. In this conversation, Hoi Yi tells co-worker Eric Hall what it was like to live under the communist rule of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia back in the 1970s. Hoi had been an elementary school teacher, but now was forced to live on a cooperative farm with his family. And during this time, teachers and professionals were being killed by the armed forces. In this excerpt, Hoi tells Eric about one of the times he escaped execution by a Khmer Rouge soldier when the president of his village refused to give him up. Only one guy who tried to kill the people in my village. And every single individual in my village, in my cooperative, scared the heck out of him. The people don't even walk close to him. He's just that powerful, I tell you. They call the uh, Khmer Rouge a soldier or something. And he's uh, with one uh, AK-47 on his shoulder every day. And he kill people every day. And he takes the prisoner every day. We can see that on the road. I pull out my trailer from my, my barn, go to work. I feel very bad in about two or three weeks. I cannot sleep. I cannot eat. I cannot drink. But my strength, I tell you, I can pull three kilograms of rice on my trailer very easily for those duration. When I pass by each kitchen because I carry the food from one from from the store from the warehouse to every kitchen every day. And there's a cook in the kitchen look at oh the cook in the kitchen look at me, turn it away. All the women turn it away not with smile, with a sad face. And I feel that I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know? You knew it, yeah. That guy went to the uh, to to the right field because my Mr. my president, the president of the village, always out there work with the people. He went there as my life again, and I knew that. And uh, oh boy, I, you know, when you are, you think you're gonna die tonight. You cannot imagine what you feel. No. One night, I sit down in, in, at the door. My two children mm-hmm. sleep there. Mm-hmm. But I talk to one of my relatives. I say that if I die, you know, take care of my, my two children too. Mm-hmm. And my, my ex-wife was in the right field out there. So I don't know where she at. And my boy, my two boys, you know, three, four, five years old, we don't have a, a children's center yet. Come home and sleep. Early morning, they had to go carry the firewood for the kitchen. Carry the rice bundle for... It is an awful life. And then uh, I wait that night, and I plant, I planted a lot of trees around my, my hut. Very, very bright uh, moon that night. The wind blowing. I can hear the... 
you know, the, uh, the, the, the banana leaves, you know, rustling, yeah. waiting for someone to pick me up, tie me up, and beat me with a bamboo stick somewhere because I know where they kill the people. And waiting and waiting and waiting is nothing happened that night. So next morning I go to work again. Couple of days later, one of my good friend who is the uh, is a big guy too. He's a in the in in the power mm-hmm, in important. the power too. Yeah, and uh, he have a big smile on his face. He said, "Hey, Tahoy, you are not gonna die anymore." He said, no, you know, uh, Matsan went to ask your life from uh, Matkun, his name the pro- as a president. He, they, he denied it. He don't give it to you. So you're going to live from now on. You know, you know what, what exciting in your mind you have if you get out from death to life? Everyone in this community has a story. The Petersburg Listening Project seeks to honor our common ground and our diversity by creating an archive of oral histories. We encourage people to inquire and listen to each other's life experiences by setting aside time for an interview, which will be recorded and saved for posterity at the public library. In this excerpt, Heidi Lee speaks with her former high school teacher, Lee Ribick, about what originally brought him to Alaska. We had left Detroit. I was in the National Guard, and I had I had to uh, serve in the Detroit riots of 1967. And uh, as a and I'll say it, I'll say it. I know where I am. As a Detroit liberal, I had a, a difficult time adjusting to the fact that uh, uh, I knew what these people were upset about, and. Uh, I was there, however, protecting, as a police say, protect and serve. So with that going on in Detroit and me having a hard time adjusting to it, I decided that there's got to be another way, and and I thought a better way, and I was right, a better way. I decided to find a, find a place where we could make a difference. You know, it, it, in a place like Detroit, one personality, unless they go into some kind of high-level public service, may not make much of a difference. Mm-hmm. But when we're talking about personalities and we're talking about small places and the opportunity to do big things in small places. I just remember when... I went into your classroom the first time and you started talking. I realized you really got to the heart of things. I mean, that's what I always liked was the fact that you um, you could tell that you were going to have good discussions. We were going to learn what was really happening right now. And it really mattered. I always felt like I was interested. I wanted to go. And I I appreciated when you um, got me going on the oral history project because I was a senior, and although I like to go to your class, maybe some of the other classes I didn't <laughs> like to go to. <laughs> but 
you got me interested in school again because you said, well, okay, let's do an independent study. And how about if you go do a senior project and do some oral history? So, And then it seemed like after that you branched off into oral history and you produced yeah. some books and things like that, right? Well, what, be, what became of that, Heidi, and this is another one of those examples of did I teach more than I learned? Uh, <laughs> uh, what became of that was uh, an elective class called folklore. And uh, so therefore what your motivation did was motivate me to make something, again, bigger. So it's very kind of you to say what you did, and uh, I very much appreciate that and uh, appreciate the opportunity that you gave me. In this excerpt, Pilot Bill Stedman tells his wife, Carol, about the only accident he had in 40 years of flying. Going back to flying, uh, I know people always want to know if you ever had any accidents, and you've probably uh, told this story a hundred times. But I had one accident, one. I was Out of 40 years, I'd say that's pretty good. Yeah. I was going to say we walked away from, all, uh, from it, but... We swam away from it. <laughs> it was in the water. Uh, I, I was I was flying a small airplane, and I had two passengers myself, and I had a, a bag with ten thousand dollars in cash laying up on the dashboard of the airplane. I was supposed to deliver that to a fish buying station at Coronation Island. Well, it was kind of a nasty day and a, a strong, gusty wind. So when I got there, I flew over three or four times to check the wind and the water conditions. And What kind of plane were you in? It was a, called a Piper Pacer, a four-place airplane. Okay. I finally decided, well, it looked okay. I could land there all right, I thought. Anyway, I just touched the water, and I could see how the right <laughs> windshield, a gust of wind, just black gust came, about 40-knot wind hit me on the, on the right side, picked the airplane up uh, till the left wing was clear in the water, tore the tip of the half of the wing off, and then the airplane upended. And then the last thing I can really remember is I could just see the water coming up over the windshield as we went straight down. And uh, it finally bobbed up. We were upside down, hanging by the floats. And, I don't remember exactly, but we all got out right away immediately and hung on to the pontoons there for just a short time. And there was a lot of trolling boats in the air, uh, anchored up close by. So we had a boat over there, short time picked us up. And You only had one passenger in there, didn't two. you? Two. You had two? And they both got out? Oh, yes. Then after, there was a big packer there, and they came over and picked the airplane up and set it on the, on the deck. And then I started looking for the bag of money. 
I couldn't find it for a long time. Finally, some way, it got clear back in the tail of the airplane, and uh, it was all there. It was damp, of course. (laughs) (laughs) In this interview, Ray Dubuquois talks with Molly Tabor about growing up in the village of Cake. Oh, it's such a wonderful, wonderful location. We never, we never really took a look at it because we were so used to it. But when, when you go away from Cake and you come back, you see the mountains in the distance, you see the trees all around, and if you go out, if you go out of town a little ways, you hit the little creeks there that are bringing in the fish. You miss it a lot. I I do. I still do. Yeah. It's a it's a part of you. That'll, oh, it's that'll a, always be. It's a wonderful part of me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember living with my grand my grandparents my raised me and my older brother, and it was beautiful. We lived a subsistence lifestyle, and we put up food, dry fish, even seaweed. Oh, it was beautiful just living. At the time, in the late 40s, we didn't have much electricity. We had a little power plant, and it got up, and it went off at 10 o'clock at night, and we lit lamps in there. We didn't have, you know, we didn't know that we were um, doing without. It was, you know, it was nice. We, most of us spoke Tlingit. I loved it. And going to fish camp was was the high point of my life because, oh boy. My grandmother, Mary, when we were going to uh, Cape Bengal. She would steer the boat. I remember and my my grandpa would watch the motor to make sure it ran all the way. <laughs> and I remember my grandmother steering the boat. And uh, they made some sort of a parable about that because uh, about the woman that steers me through life. And um, the grand, the grandfather that keeps things moving and and provides, which my grandfather was doing on that little boat. I didn't have to do a thing but play. My grand, my grandparents put up a tent. My older brother, Gilbert, he helped the folks do do the camping stuff. And they gave me a little punt to play with on, in the water. Um, it wasn't very big. I had a learned seamanship. <laughs> How to be careful on the ocean, you know, playing on my little punt. Oh, I miss that. I'm 78 years old, and I still think about that. But we learned stuff out there we wouldn't have learned in the classroom. What did uh, you learn at fish camp? What lessons did you learn? Oh, my. Survival. Survival in the woods. 
seamanship on my little boat and how to bait a hook to catch a salmon and sitting by the fire and listening to Grandpa talk, which was very enjoyable. And my uncle's telling stories in Tlingit. Just beautiful. I'm 78 and I still remember that. Everyone in this community has a story. The Petersburg Listening Project seeks to honor our common ground and our diversity by creating an archive of oral histories. We encourage people to inquire and listen to each other's life experiences by setting aside time for an interview, which will be recorded and saved for posterity at the public library. In this excerpt, Polly Lee tells Susan Christensen about her early efforts to beautify Petersburg with the Civic Improvement Committee and her later involvement in starting the Arts Council. One of the really interesting things that the city council gave us to do was to uh, rid the city of rats. <laughs> not, not necessarily the city, but the dump, and then also the city. Uh-huh. Well, Ruth Sandvik stood up and said, we will. And the rest of us were <laughs> silently thinking, well, how Ow. are we going to do that? Uh-huh. Well, it turns out that there was a man named Lee... Something, uh, a fish and game guy from Wrangell. Uh, we consulted with him. He came over here and just and gave us a bunch of warfarin to. Uh, oh yeah, that's that was the time. Remember, this is in the fifties, late fifties, and um, so we distributed uh, warfarin to those who called and told us they'd like to have some because they had rats around their uh-huh. house, and. Um, uh, also deposited in different places at the dump, and you know we got rid of the rats. You know you think you get rid of rats, but we didn't see any more. Yeah, with warfarin, I'm sure you didn't. <laughs> and we reported this to the city council. You can be sure. I can just the city council probably thought they'd gotten rid of you for good. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, they thought they were pr- proposing something that would be preposterous and a little insulting. Oh, that is amazing. The Civic Improvements, Petersburg Improvements Committee, then where did the Arts Council come in to that? Okay. We had accomplished a lot of our goals in Mm -hmm. CIC. Including these uh, rats. And and then so we were resting a little while. And uh, along came a time when the uh, United States created the National Council uh, Council on the Arts. Mm -hmm. And shortly after that was begun, the National Council uh, enabled all the states, any state who applied for it, and mm-hmm. now all states have their state arts council. Uh-huh. I was appointed to that by Governor Egan. Then it wasn't uh, but a year or two years before our state arts council then um, determined that local state arts councils should uh, be formed in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, all of those who were on the State Arts Council, their own communities got the first impact because they were there. But the arts director, when Roy Helms at that time, Mm -hmm. uh, made visits to many of the communities, um, urging them to form community arts councils. Uh And so that was the beginning. And as best I can remember, that was about 79. Really? I'm not sure if that's exactly right, but I think Uh so. Interesting. Art in such a place. Um, 
I know you have a philosophy about that, and I, I, I would love it if you just talk a little bit about the importance of art in a community and in a, in a life. Well, thank you for that wonderful question. It's uh, dear to my heart. Uh, I feel, uh, as do many others, uh, that uh, art is intrinsic to our lives, and um, it makes us better people, uh, especially if we have something to do with installing the art, whether it's uh, choosing it or just simply supporting it as a community member. Um, artists need a lot of support, and public art needs a lot of support. It does things to us. If we live in a community that is uh, healthy and beautiful, I'm convinced we are better people. We live better together. We make, uh, we're better neighbors. Uh, we see that our children grow better. And we just care more about our lives and all the creatures that, that share our world. Yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> I do feel strongly that way. Uh-huh.